I'm going to preach a message today called Bright Light and Salty Truth. Bright Light and Salty Truth from the Sermon on the Mount. You can go there in Matthew chapter 5 if you want to follow along. Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. This is a great passage. It's hard for us to understand the full gravity of what's being talked about because times have changed. We live in a different culture today. But in Jesus' day, salt was a huge deal. A lot of you know this. Salt is necessary for your body to function. And we constantly lose salt as we breathe and sweat and do our business. And so we need salt in our bodies just to have proper respiration and digestion. Without it, our body can't transport oxygen to our cells or nutrients to our cells. We can't transmit nerve impulses or move our muscles without salt. So salt was a big deal. In fact, the word salary comes from the Latin word salarium, which was a Roman soldier's salt allowance. People were paid in salt. And salt does a lot of good things uh, for us, but even more importantly, in Jesus' day, salt was critical for society to function. So salt preserves. In those days, they didn't have refrigerators like we do, so they'd put salt on meat to preserve it, keep it from going bad. Um, you see the effects of sin in society and how our society uh, sadly is decaying and becoming increasingly immoral here in, in American society. And the effects of that are very serious and damaging. You see uh, fatherlessness, the breakdown of the home and the family unit. You see sexual deviancy. Uh, and as families fall apart, we know that crime increases. There's an increase in abuse and injustice. But God's people are supposed to function like salt to society and prevent decay. And it's interesting that sociologically, wherever there are churches, there are lower rates of divorce, abuse, poverty, and hunger. Because the church is like salt to society. And I want you to know that if you come from a family that has been broken, if you've experienced heartbreak because of the effects of sin, you can change that cycle and Jesus can transform your life and transform your family through you. Just know that, okay? Salt makes people thirsty. How many of you love salty snacks? How many of you are, show of hands, how many of you are chip people? You like chips, okay? How many of you are pretzel people? Pretzels, nut, anybody nuts? Yeah, you're nuts, you are nuts. How many, how many of you like pork grinds? Anything, pork grinds? Okay, what about uh, Cheetos? I, I love salty snacks. The thing is though, they make you thirsty. So you gotta have water or some soda or some sweet tea, or some other kind of beverage that I can't officially endorse, but you know, you do what you gotta do. Salt makes you thirsty. And, and the same thing is true that as Christians, we make the world thirsty for Jesus. As people encounter Jesus shining through you, it's unusual. It's weird to love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's weird to forgive those who offend you. It's weird to have joy in the middle of a pandemic. And so when people encounter that in you, it makes them thirsty. They're like, what is that? 
I want some of whatever you got. And then you get to turn around and tell them what you're looking for is Jesus, right? And so that's the next thing. Salt enhances flavor. Salt makes food more satisfying. In fact, the word salad comes from the Latin word salata, which means salted things. Salt can even make vegetables taste good, okay? That's how amazing it is. And so as people become thirsty for Jesus, when you provide them the truth, when they encounter Jesus in you, they start to understand why Jesus said, anyone who comes to me will never hunger or thirst again. He's satisfying, right? He satisfies their thirst. Jesus says, you're the salt of the world. And then he says, you're the light. You're the light of the world. He talks about light. And think about, think about light, right? Uh, light is important. And, and you know this, right? If you've ever tried to walk through a dark house that you're unfamiliar with in the dark, it doesn't go, it doesn't go well. You know, you, you have stubbed toes. There are swear words. And it's just painful, right? You need light to function. Years ago, during one of our PM services in the Mesa campus, uh, a storm raged through East Mesa and the lights went out, the power went out. I'll tell you what, we could not have church. We just couldn't do it. We had to move out into the lobby and get some natural light coming in through the window. Everybody's stuffed in there and we tried the best we could, but you need light to function. You need light for a healthy mindset, okay? It's proven that a lack of light can cause depression. There's a, there's a, a diagnosis called seasonal affective a disorder where a lack of light can lead to struggle with depression. We have a lot of people in our church here in Arizona who moved here from cloudy, rainy places, right? Like I'll meet a lot of former Washingtonians who come down to Arizona for sunlight to get away from the rain. I'm like, look, you really wanted to get away from the Seahawks. I know, you just admit it. Nobody wants to be a Seahawks fan. Someone's like, boo. The, the light can be scary, or lack of light can be scary. And there's a reason why every scary movie is dark. Why is it that the batteries go bad in flashlights in every single scary movie? Like, do people never check the batteries in their flashlights? That's why Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, he said this. He said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. So as a Christian, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Leading people out of darkness by the light of Jesus Christ that shines through you. And the, the Lord, Jesus, he warns us not to lose our saltiness or let our lights grow dim. And so he says that one of the ways that that happens is if we don't do good deeds. He said, so let your good deeds shine for all to see. In James chapter 2, verse 17, it says this. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. So we don't want to just say we have faith. We don't want to just say we love people. We need to actually show them through our actions. Amen, church? You agree with that? But what I want to talk about today is that there is another way that we lose saltiness and dim our lights. And it's not by a lack of good deeds, but a lack of good doctrine. Doctrine is a set of beliefs. So good doctrine would be good 
beliefs versus bad beliefs or corrupted beliefs. Some people believe in God, but they believe a lot of wrong things about God. Have you encountered that ever before? I know some Christians who do good deeds, but they have bad doctrine, and you need both. You need both. God cares about what you do, but he cares even more about why you do it. So are you doing good to earn his love or are you doing good to thank him for the love that he's already given you? Doctrine determines motivation. How many Christians develop bad doctrine? It's, it's concerning to me. Uh, or another way to say it would be corrupted or distorted beliefs. How does this happen? Well, it happens sometimes because they have an incomplete knowledge of the truth. And I want to just say this. If your only exposure to the word of God is a sermon that you hear in church once every three weeks, you're not going to be equipped. You're not going to be ready to, to shine bright in the world. That'd be like going to school once every three weeks and then being surprised that you can't pass any tests. It's an incomplete knowledge of the truth. Another thing that, that happens is sometimes Christians want to dumb the truth down trying not to offend anyone. Isn't it crazy how everyone is offended today by everything? Some people want to ignore the parts of Scripture that are hard to accept. Like the Bible talks about hell, and that's a difficult thing to talk about, but people try to explain that away. Well, like, well, like you know, I think hell is just a metaphor. Sometimes Christians value cultural trends over timeless truth. And they'll hear teaching from the Word of God, and they'll be like, oh, those beliefs are so old-fashioned. There are the people here, and, and some people will say stuff like, well, you know, you can't believe everything in the Bible. There are people that say, you can't take the Bible literally. You, literally. you can't believe everything in the Bible. Here's the thing. When Christians lose their saltiness and dim the light of Christ from the world, the people who need it most, man, they're not functioning the way that God intended, and that happens when they don't have good Doctrine, And I know this is a little bit more of a teachy sermon. It's going to be a little bit more of a teachy sermon. So if you're a new Christian or you're still growing in maturity, this is going to help you grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Okay, And when you lose your saltiness, no longer preserves against decay. Lives fall apart. No longer makes people thirsty. No longer satisfies. You can't satisfy people with half-truth. Right? Like, well, you know, Jesus is cool, but to each his own, you know, there's a lot of different religions and, and they're all good and they all have a lot in common. Eh, why would I care about that? But when you tell people, Jesus changed my life, he gave me hope, he forgave my sins, he gave me joy, he restored my soul, and he'll do the same thing for you. That satisfies the hunger and thirst that people have in their soul. So I want to show you something. Right after, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He starts talking about the law of Moses and the prophets. We call it the Old Testament. This is like the first part of your Bible if you're a Christian. It says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says this, so if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great 
in the kingdom of heaven, okay? So this is not a coincidence. Jesus wants you to be salty. He wants you to shine bright. But in order to do that, we need to understand how we should relate to the Old Testament and New Testament as a follower of Jesus. We need to understand all of God's word. If you go from Genesis to Deuteronomy in your Bible, the first chapters there, you'll find that according to Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments. How many of you think you could keep 613 commandments? You can't even keep the 10 commandments. I can't either. And that's a lot, right? And so you know when Jesus came and he was starting something new, there was a good Jewish boy that was like, so we don't have to follow the Old Testament anymore, right, Jesus? Sweet, because that's a lot. That's a lot of work. And, and there are some Christians today who hear Jesus is teaching about grace, and they go, oh, well, we don't really have to worry about sin anymore, do we, Jesus? Because we can just ask for forgiveness. And Jesus says, uh-uh-uh, not so fast. Don't think I've come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. A lot of what we need to know is found in the Old Testament. A lot of wisdom that we need is found in the Old Testament. A lot of God's goodness and faithfulness is displayed in the Old Testament. Our major part of our, the major part of our understanding about who God is is found by combining the Old Testament with the New Testament. And some Christians don't understand that, and that's what I want to help us with today. I want to help us with that. Some Christians have this misperception that the Old Testament is just filled with rules, and the New Testament is like a license to kill and just do whatever. And if you ask for forgiveness, it's all good. And that's not, that's not accurate. That leads to not taking God's commands seriously, not taking his warnings about sin seriously. I want you to understand this, church. The Old Testament and New Testament do not conflict with each other. They complete each other. And so if you don't gain wisdom from both pieces of, of Scripture, of your Bible, right, you're going to have an incomplete understanding of who God is. Separately, they're good, but together they add layers of understanding that strengthen your foundation of faith. Together they create a more rich and satisfying understanding of who God is and what he wants. The Old Testament introduces us to God as creator and judge. And the New Testament shows us that he's also like a loving father. Until you understand God as judge, you won't appreciate him as a father. Until you see the Old Testament sacrifices that had to happen for sin, you won't appreciate that Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. So not understanding all of Scripture it really matters. It keeps some Christians from growing in their faith and submission to the Lord. And it comes up especially when, it, when we talk about difficult subjects, the most controversial subjects, like, like sexuality and money. It always, always comes back to sex and money, doesn't it? That's a big issue for pretty much everyone who's ever lived. If you've, have, if you've had a pulse, you've had an issue with sex or money at some point. And so we'll teach what the Bible talks about, that God created a, a healthy framework for sex to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in marriage. And in that context, it's a good thing. Like, ice cream is a good thing. A sunny day by the pool, good thing. It's not everything, 
but it's a good thing. And when we talk about sexuality, some people will be like, oh, well, that's Old Testament. It's like, no, bro, it's also New Testament. It's confirmed. And we'll talk about finances and, and how we want to honor God with the first part of our finances. And we'll talk about tithing sometimes. And people will be like, oh, tithing is Old Testament. And it's like, man, actually the New Testament encourages giving above and beyond tithing. Okay? And some people will say, man, that pastor, he talked about tithing a lot. Actually, the last time I talked about tithing was February 23rd. My goodness, it's been a while. And I, I just want to throw this out there. Like, I talk about it two or three times a year, and that's not a lot compared to a lot of you getting paid 24 times, 52 times a year, swiping your credit card thousands of times a year. I think knowing how to honor God with our finances is important. When we talk about these things, ultimately people will either think or feel something like, well, I don't like those parts of the Bible. Let's be honest, right? There are things I've read in the Bible, and it's like, whew, I don't really enjoy this. And, and I found over time, and I want you to understand this, when I come across something in Scripture that I don't like, it doesn't reveal a problem with God. It reveals a problem with me. You can write that down. <laughs> it's not a problem with God. It's a problem with me because there is an inner struggle taking place in my heart for who gets to be the God of my life. Am I going to be God or am I going to surrender control to the God of heaven and earth. What I've found, church, is I make a lousy God. I tend to let myself down. I tend to come up short. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But God is faithful and he never fails. Amen? So I don't think it's a coincidence that this is discussed when it is. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And then he talks about the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. We lose our saltiness. Our light is dimmed when we devalue the parts of Scripture that we don't like, when we compromise the standard of righteousness. So here's a little Bible study tip. The Old Testament tends to lay down the law, and the New Testament oftentimes reveals the heart behind the law. So you've probably heard this rule before, no running by the pool. Right, that's the law. Lay it down. But there's heart behind that law, right? We don't want you to slip and bust your pretty face. We care about you. We want you to be okay. And that's how the Bible works. The Lord lays the law down, but the heart behind the law, it's for your benefit and your blessing. Think about the Ten Commandments, right? The first five have a lot to do with how we should honor God. No other gods before me, right? No idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. The last five have to do with how we should treat one another. Pretty basic guidelines like don't murder, steal, lie, commit adultery. Basic things. That's the law. But then God reveals the heart behind the law. Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 57, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. All of the Old Testament is based on love. God wants your love. He wants you to love one another. That's the heart behind the law right there. And people get confused 
And so I just want to have like a moment of teaching here that hopefully is helpful to you. You think about those 613 commandments in the Old Testament, and it's hard to know well, what applies to us and what doesn't apply to us anymore. There are three types of Old Testament law. There's societal laws, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Societal laws were for the nation of Israel, the way that our country has laws, like don't break the speed limit. They had laws for their nation to keep people safe and maintain law and order. Like in Deuteronomy 22, it says you should put a guardrail on a rooftop patio so people don't fall off. That's a, that's a law. That's a good law, though. Like, I think that's a great law, right? Then there are ceremonial laws that have to do with being worthy to enter God's presence and worship. So one of them was like, don't touch a dead body. Uh, make sure you put salt on sacrifices. All right, And a lot of these don't apply to us anymore, but the principles behind these laws can still be very helpful to us. And then there are moral laws, things that are just right and wrong for all time and all people. Things like don't rape. Applies to everyone, no matter when you live or where you live, right? Uh, Leviticus 19, verse 14 says, don't trip blind people. That's a good law, right? I mean, like, that's the Old Testament, but just because it's the Old Testament doesn't mean that it's wrong for us. And so let me just go into a little bit of a, an illustration here. People will, will wonder, like, when an issue comes up that's controversial, like, we'll talk about, for example, the Bible clearly states that homosexuality is a sin. We still love people who engage in that practice, but the Bible clearly says it's a sin. But people will say, well, that's Old Testament. The Old Testament also says you can't eat shellfish. I'm going to show you how to do systematic theology. I want to teach you how to do this, where you look at all of Scripture to gain understanding about God's will and his ways. So Leviticus 11 says, You must never eat animals from the sea or from rivers that do not have both fins and scales. They are detestable to you. Okay, that's an example. Logically, you can see how this would have been helpful for God's people. They lived in a time without refrigeration. Have you ever gotten, uh, you know, like food poisoning from bad seafood, anybody? So imagine trying to eat like clams and oysters back in, in ancient Israel. And you can see why God maybe created this as a rule. But this was part of the ceremonial law of God's people. And there were certain things that if you did them, it made you spiritually unclean and unworthy to worship God. Okay, And then we see that Jesus changed the ceremonial law system. It says in Hebrews 9, verse 13, Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. So now we're going in the New Testament and we see that Jesus has changed the system. It's not what we eat that makes us clean in God. God's sight. Jesus has made us clean. And then I'll show you another example to gain more understanding about this because I know you, you like your shrimp. Okay. Acts chapter 10, we see this. Peter, he saw the sky open. He had like this vision 
And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. These were unclean animals that Jews were forbidden to eat. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish law have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean, okay? So the Old Testament ceremonial law served its purpose. It taught us that sin makes us unworthy to enter into God's presence. And in the Old Testament times, the priests had to offer sacrifice to cleanse people from their sins temporarily. But now we see that Jesus has made us clean once and for all. We can enter God's presence and worship him with boldness. So throw another shrimp on the barbie and enjoy whatever, bacon, whatever, right? Those laws don't all apply to you anymore. But let me give you a second example. It's maybe a little bit more serious. Let's talk about adultery. Adultery. Leviticus says this. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. Now, we obviously don't do that. We're not putting adulterers to death anymore. So you might wonder, does that now mean adultery is also okay now? No, because we know in the Ten Commandments, God said, you should not commit adultery. It's a moral law. Isaiah 57, God says that his people are spiritually adulterous when they worship idols because he wants our singular devotion, the way that a marriage should have singular devotion between man and wife. In New Testament times, we see Jesus said in Matthew 5.27, the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her, with her in his heart. And so he quoted the Old Testament but then he raised the stakes and showed us the heart behind the law. Shows us that God doesn't just care about your actions. He cares about your heart. And then I want to show you this in John chapter 8. It says this. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then Jesus stood up again and said to this woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, sir, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So then we gain this systematic approach. Through this systematic approach, we gain understanding of what God, what he feels about adultery. That it's, it's still a sin to commit adultery. Jesus said, go and sin no more. He wasn't okay with adultery. But you notice that he didn't execute her. He was teaching us to show grace to people even in their moment of sin, right? And so we're gaining conclusions through this, right? We don't kill adulterers, but adultery is still a sin. It's a sin. The Old Testament confirmed it. Uh, the Old Testament said it. The New Testament confirmed it. We read all of scriptures, and we realize that God doesn't just want behavioral modification. He wants heart transformation. That's what he wants. And so the goal of this message, okay, is this. I want you to understand, value, and believe all of God's word. That's what I want. I want you to understand, value, and believe all of God's word. This is a discipleship growth message. Sometimes people will say to me when they want a virtue signal and feel really spiritual, they'll say, 
Pastor Ryan, it's great that all these Christians are getting saved, but when are we going to disciple these people? And I'm like, you know, that is a great idea. We should disciple people. That's No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm being sarcastic. We have life groups that are called grow groups that help you grow in the foundations of your faith. And then we preach messages that enhance your discipleship like this. This is a message that will help you understand, value, and believe all of God's word. If you don't believe all of God's word, even the parts that are hard, eventually you won't believe any of God's word. If you don't believe the challenging scriptures, you won't believe the encouraging scriptures. If you don't believe sin is bad, you won't believe God is good. And, and I'll just be honest, man, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who have a hard time receiving teaching that is direct and truthful and bold from the word of God. Let me just say this, because I know we have a lot of new people in this church. Um, if you're looking for a church that believes all of the Bible, and teaches the word of God, a church that wants to be bold in proclaiming the truth in love, you're going to like this church. All right. But I just want to be open and honest, right? If you want a church where no one ever gets offended, where they avoid the parts of scripture that make people uncomfortable, like you might not like this church. And that's okay because we need your seat. Not every church is right for every person, okay? Second Timothy chapter 3 says this. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Remember, I talked about persecution last week if you uphold God's word. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived, right? You get deceived because you don't understand the word of God. That's how it happens, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. This is so, it's so good, right? All scripture is helpful. It's important. So I want to ask you this question. Where do you find truth? The world that we live in right now is trying to teach people that truth is subjective, like, speak your truth, and I'm going to speak my truth. It's an improper way of thinking because there is only the truth. Everything else that's not the truth is false. And so I want to ask you these simple questions as we come to the close of this message. Will you believe God over the world? Right? Regardless of what culture says, what, regardless of what the world says is progressive or enlightened, will you believe God over the world? Here's the next question. Will you believe God over yourself? Right? Because you're going to have your own opinions and ideas and thoughts, and people will hear teaching from God's word, but then they'll rebut it with like, well, but I think. Here's what I've learned. Anytime my opinions do not align with God's word, I'm wrong. 
And anytime they do align with God's word, I happen to be right. Because God is right. So will you believe God over yourself? And then let me ask you this question. Will you let scripture correct you when you're wrong and teach you what's right? Everyone will say, well, yeah, sure. But will you? Like, but will you? What determines if you'll do this? What determines if you'll really do this when the rubber hits the road? It's this. Do you have a hard heart or a heart after God's heart? Having a heart after God's heart doesn't mean you'll live a perfect life. Like, but like when David fell in adultery in the Old Testament times, he had a heart after God's heart. And when he was confronted with his sin, when he was called out, he repented before God. He acknowledged his mistake and he made the steps to correct it. So will you do that? I just want to see you do that. I want to close with this. There are two types of people in the world. There's rule followers and rebels, right? We're all naturally one of those two. How many of you are naturally rule followers, okay? My wife is a natural rule follower. How many of you are natural rebels? That's me, okay? Natural rebel right here. Breaking all the rules, getting detention, okay? So I want to say this. There are two religious types who will be tragically disappointed. The first is self-proclaimed Christians who break God's laws. These are religious rebels. These are people that hear what the Word of God says, and they go, well, I don't want to believe that part of the Bible. I don't want to live that out in my life. That's not my truth. I'm going to do it my way. Let me show you Matthew 7, what it says. This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So think about how this could happen in modern times, right? You could have a Christian who says, but Lord, I prayed. I raised my hands in worship. I gave food to hungry people. But then God might look at some of these people and say, yeah, you did some things that were good, but you picked and chose what you wanted to do. You didn't follow all my commands and my decrees. You didn't totally submit your life to the Lord. I want you to know you can't pick and choose which parts of your life you'll submit to Jesus Christ. One old pastor said he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. So you got to ask me, I don't want to be a religious rebel. And then here's the second type of tragically disappointed person, the self-righteous who fall short. And these are the religious rule followers. And these are the people that think, man, if I, just, if I just do all the right things, that will make me worthy of God's love. If I just obey all the Ten Commandments and I do all the right things and I go to church and I get a gold star on my attendance sheet, right? Like, then God will, will have to accept me and that will make me better than everyone else. These are the religious rule followers. And that's why this is so interesting and important. In Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus said, But I warn you right after this talk that I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. He said, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So what does he mean by that? The teachers of religious law and Pharisees were meticulous rule followers. They were meticulous about it. Like if you gave a Pharisee a free bottle of toothpaste, he would squeeze out the first 10% of it for his tithes. Right? Like, like they were doing every little thing. They were trying to do every little thing right. And it made them self-righteous. They thought their good deeds made them righteous in God's sight and better than everyone else. But Jesus was saying, okay, if you want to play by that standard, you better keep all 613 commandments perfectly from your first breath till your last, or you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And the reason he said that is because all of us need to come to a point where we realize, I can't do it on my own. I'll never live up to God's standard of righteousness. No one can do it. That's why Romans 3 says, no one is perfect, not even one. No one is righteous. All have broken God's laws. And that leads us to a point where we go, well, then what should I do? And God says, I'll tell you what to do. It says in Galatians 3.24, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. The law kept us from hurting ourselves and destroying ourselves, but we could not follow it perfectly. It was like a faithful friend who led us to the one who could keep the law perfectly. Jesus is the heart behind the law. He is the one who met all of God's standards perfectly. Some of you might have grown up in households that were very strict. Some of you might have been a part of a religious system before that was very strict. It was not founded on the grace of God. And that made you feel like you were never good enough. Made you feel like you were always letting someone down. And that's why you need to know Jesus Christ and that we are made right through faith in Jesus. Not by what we do, although what we do is important, but by faith in Jesus, we receive the grace of God and that makes us righteous. It cleanses us from sin. It gives us freedom from the burden of having to perfectly uphold the law because we get to rest in the perfection of Jesus. We know that I can't please God by achieving. And so I can only please him by believing in Jesus. I can't cling to the law. I've got to cling to the cross. And what happens is the longer we cling to the cross, the more we start to look like the one who carried it. Jesus is relief for the rule follower. And he's the big break for the rule breaker. When you come to Jesus, that's where you find light. And so we want to take the word of God seriously, and we want to do everything we can to uphold God's standards, what's right and what's wrong, but we know that we don't please him through our own perfection because we're not perfect. We rest in the perfection of Jesus. Even as we pursue righteousness, we rest in the perfection of Jesus. Amen, church? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe you're at church today online in Ahwatukee. Man, I love everyone at our Ahwatukee campus. In Mesa, maybe you know I need to experience the grace of God, which cleanses me from sin and makes me right in God's sight. And maybe today you've had an awareness of the fact, like, I don't measure up to God's laws, and I never can. And so I need Jesus to forgive my sin and make me clean so that I can live for him.
and do what he's called me to do. The Bible says it's so clear that we are made right with God through faith in Christ Jesus. That means we trust him to save us. We trust him to uphold God's standard on our behalf. We trust him and his word, and we do what he says to the best of our ability. And so I want to invite anyone that might be at church today or with us online to take the step of faith, which involves surrendering your life to Christ fully and completely, and just saying, Lord, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to believe you over the world. I'm going to believe you over myself. I'm going to let your word teach me what is true and give me the wisdom for salvation. If you're here at church today or you're listening to my words today and you say, I want Jesus and I want to experience salvation, just pray this with me. It's not magic, but just pray, Lord, I need you. I have sinned. I do need forgiveness. I know I can't save myself. I know Jesus died to make me right with God. I know he rose again to show that I can have eternal life through him. He defeated sin, he defeated death, and I can overcome in his name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.